0: That's BlueNile.com. Ahí
1: va Blue a llegar el gol del Arsenal. Ophel. Marca Mesuto. Ophel. Bellerín. Otro defensor. Otro disparo. Monreal. Gol. Marca el futbolista español. Marca Nacho. Monreal. Pim pam pum. This is Arscast
2: Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunnar Blog, James F. Festive. Goodly morning to you.
1: Yeah, goodly morning to you too. What could be more Christmassy than laughing at the misfortune of others? And thanks to Arsenal, we have that opportunity.
2: We certainly do. the uh, The outrage, the Schadenfreude, that most uh, precious of Christmas gifts, was was there for us yesterday, wasn't it? I, you know, I, I send the blog today. I never watch. Never watch the the post-game stuff, really, because, uh, you know, I I like to sort of make my own mind up on things. And also, I don't really care what Jamie Redknapp thinks about anything. So those two things push me away from post-match stuff. But I left it on yesterday, and I saw Ashley Barnes on TV absolutely fume Fuming. His kids are going to get nothing for Christmas. He was so cross. And then Sean Dyche afterwards as well. Just, you know, on Sky complaining about us diving. (laughs) That's how he sounds to me. That really hurt my throat, by the way. So I think I've fucked my voice for the rest of this podcast. But
1: Imagine if you accidentally got stuck like that and you did just sound like Sean Dyche from now on. Oh, my God. What a a curse. Yeah, it would be. A Christmas curse. (laughs) I
2: I suggest we'd lose listeners fast, if that were the case. Perhaps
1: so, perhaps so. But he was very much, yeah, cast as the the Grinch yesterday in our our festive tale. I mean, I actually didn't see the post-match, but I have since sorted it out. And if you haven't seen it, it is is worth doing, especially in light of the result. It's enjoyable seeing quite how angry it made them. Sean Dyche is sort of plaintive cries of what about the children yeah, exactly particularly absurd i think <laughs> in his post match press conference
2: we can't be teaching these children to dive that's abhorrent let's never teach children to dive we've got a responsibility as custodians of the game of football to 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 show the game in the best light and to to set an example for these young impressionable kids who we would like to go out on the pitch and kick the shit out of the opposition violence yeah ultra violence that's no problem. Kids need to learn how to fucking stand up for themselves. Well, none of this, none of this soft
1: diving shit. Oh, it's
2: yeah, funny. Just it really t- is
1: funny. Teach them. When they're young, you've got to get them when they're young and that's when they must learn about elbowing and stamping and things like that. Yeah, um, I, 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 I've got a mate who's a Spurs fan that I follow on Twitter and they played Burnley a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was sort of quite disappointed at the time because I think Spurs got like a stoppage time winner or yeah. certainly a, a really late winner. Uh, but after the game, I remember reading on his timeline saying, you know... Burnley, they deserve everything they get. They're the worst, most horrific team I've ever seen us play. And I kind of took it with a pinch of salt. You know, I was like, well, they seem like the... the, Exactly, Spurs fan. They seem like the heroes, the plucky heroes of this story, the underdogs, you know, my heart's with Burnley, poor Burnley. And then I saw the game yesterday and I was like, oh no, he was right. They are absolutely horrible and sort of not very good this season either. So they've sort of lost any of their Mm. redeeming features. They really have... They feel like a bit stoky, didn't they, yesterday?
2: Yeah, quite stoky indeed. You know, the the battles we've had with them down the years, we've had some results against them which have I'd say they fucking hate us. I'd say they, at this point, really hate us because there's like the injury time winners, the handball winner. There was a late penalty, wasn't there, where we, you know, they just equalized and then we got a penalty and there was all kinds of, or all kinds of stuff has gone on between us and Burnley down the years. And look, I don't, I don't really have a problem with a team that wants to come and be physical. I don't, you know, I know there's a line and we don't want things to cross the line, but you know, if you are a limited football team. It's understandable that you will try and play the game to your own strengths. And Burnley's strengths are obviously the physical side of it. Get long balls in there, challenge, disrupt, make it difficult. Um, I, I really don't have any problem with that. First, because... I understand it, uh, having played for uh, football for many years in a team that, you know, wasn't the greatest football team of all time. But, you know, if we mm. could if we could put ourselves about, we gave ourselves a chance in, in certain matches. But also because I think this Arsenal team is more resilient. It can stand up to it. Uh, it it's got better character. It's perhaps a bit, a bit more physically durable. We've got a couple of players in there who are absolutely willing to give a bit back, which I really enjoy. But if mm. you're going to come and play like that, Don't fucking cry and piss and moan afterwards when if you give a guy a knee in the back uh, when you're on a yellow card, he lies on the ground for a while and is in pain because you've actually fucking battered him. You know, don't fucking expect people just to to take it. Oh, that's Burnley. That's what they should do. We should just accept that. No, you get it back and you get it back in different ways. And that's football and that's what happened yesterday. Arsenal stood up to it. They played the game cleverly based on how Burnley were playing the game. We made made it difficult for the referee. I'm not sure the referee was great for either side, but that's neither here nor there. But I don't know why we should just be expected to take a pounding from a big bunch of fucking brutes and not do anything about it. So, you know, by all means, play like that. But just shut the fuck up afterwards,
1: I blaming diving, diving and children
2: and fucking what a prick.
1: Uh, if you're going to play by those rules, you've got to accept it. If the opposition choose to meet you in that way, and I think what what the case is with Arsenal is that for years you could come to Arsenal and and play like that and play that game, and I don't think we would go toe to toe. I don't think we would say, "Okay, you want to sort of bend the rules? You want to play a little bit physically? We'll match you." I don't think we've had that in our team, but no. yesterday we did, and you know, I don't think anybody exemplified more that. That more than Socrates, who (laughs) I think was—I mean, look, I mean, look. There were some naughty moments, but I think among amongst them, I think he had a brilliant game as well. Uh, I I was looking at the stats. Amazing
2: stats, yeah,
1: yeah. uh, He made eleven clearances compared to one for Maitland-Niles, Montréal... Kalasenac, they all made one each. He made eleven. Well, he made eleven game.
2: clearances, I mean- seven out of seven headed clearances. Uh, you know, he what? What did he pass the ball at? Something like ninety six percent or ninety five percent pass completion. You know, he was he was absolutely uh, the rock around which we needed to build our defence yesterday because it was so makeshift. And look, I, I completely agree with you. Not only was he. You know, he, he spoke afterwards, you know, do, do you relish games like this? And he's going, yeah, of course, of course. But, you know, it's just football. That's all it is when he was asked about the thing between himself and Barnes. That's football. And look, was he a bit naughty maybe when they went, when he saw the ball out of play there at that time? Maybe, maybe he was. I'd like to think he was. Barnes reacted and then he, you know, I thought the, the, the best part of the Socrates performance was the foul in which he picked up the yellow card because he was doing it in a way which was designed to provoke a reaction from Barnes, a retaliation. He knew he was going to get a yellow card anyway. He just held on and very nearly got Burnley down to 10 men. And I'm absolutely 100 percent okay and on board with that kind of behavior from our players, because fuck it. Every other fucker does it. And I don't see why we shouldn't. We don't have to be whiter than white or, or, you know, the the football, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We don't have to, like, aspire to play this pure football. You've got to have a little bit of the the dark arts, if you like. You've got to have a bit of that about you. Otherwise, you're going to get, not that you're going to get turned over, but yesterday's game might well have been a one-point game rather than a three-point game.
1: Yeah, you know, there were shades of... Arsenal heroes like Martin Keown, I think, in what Socrates was doing yesterday. It was just that thing of sort of psychologically needling a striker. You know, even if you don't get him booked, you are affecting his his mood and his tone. And I know Barnes scored uh, later in the game, mm. but it just felt like Socrates, for the most part, had his number. And, and everything that Barnes tried with him, he showed that he was not only willing to take it, but that he could offer something back. And I... I really enjoyed his performance. I think he's he's got better and better really since he's arrived and and right now he's looking I think about as good as we could have hoped I mean he's quicker than I expected he's, he's better on the ball than I expected but I, it is that physicality it is that mm. edge that I think makes him a little bit different to some of our other options at half.
2: yeah but I mean I think we're also doing him a little bit of a disservice if we just focus on the on the the, the shithousery if you like you know yeah. or his willingness because yesterday we had a young midfielder at right back uh, a left back who is clearly struggling physically now at this point, Nacho Monreal, he went off again playing at centre half. And we have Kolasinac, of course, who is a, a left-back. I know he's more suitable as a wing-back, but he is a left-back. He's played a lot of football at left-back in his career. Nevertheless, when uh, Monreal went off, we then had a back three with a, a veteran fullback as part of that back three and the other part of the back three was a central midfielder and I know Xhaka is very willing and will, will do his best and is quite happy to help the team out there but we still had that young midfielder on the right hand side Kalasinac was dangerous on the left hand side but we needed somebody to keep it all together we needed somebody to show that bit of leadership and composure and defensive organisation and I think Socrates did that there was one moment I can't remember if it, if it was first half or second half it could have been late enough in the first half and they put the ball down the right hand side and all of a sudden from like way over the other side Socrates had read the game and come over and snuffed out the danger and whether he gave a a throw or whatever it was or cleared it upfield I can't quite remember but I remember thinking that is a guy who is running the yards for the other guys who either can't do it or aren't defensively aware enough to know that that's where they should be. So I think there was he took on a huge amount of responsibility yesterday in his performance, and he deserves real, real credit for it. I thought he was great.
1: Yeah, I think there are signs of of leadership from him too. I mean, you know, again, there's the kind of little moments where he will support a teammate in a confrontation, or he'll cajole, you know, the guys around him back into position. I think that he is growing in influence, and that role at the heart of a makeshift back three is the one we asked to play Laurent Koscielny mm. last week and we saw you know how that panned out very very tricky for him to, to keep that line together admittedly without much much practice but Socrates managed it yesterday and every time I sort of plan forward and I think about okay well if we play with the back four if we play with the back three you know every time I try and build a defense for after the January transfer window at the moment Socrates is the the man who I think I would have in it. You know, with Rob holding out, I think he's our first choice centre-half and I think he showed why yesterday. It was a a really excellent performance from someone who has steadily kind of grown into this Arsenal team, grown into this league, but now uh, I think looks right at home and you can tell the fans love him because he plays with that absolute commitment and he will do whatever it takes to win. Yeah, look, at some point he is going to go too far. There's no no question. 100%. I mean, (laughs) in some ways yesterday... I feared for him, you know, definitely, especially once he was on a booking. I was like, well, this guy's treading a tightrope now. But I suppose that is the benefit of experience, isn't
2: it? Yeah, there was a moment where, I think it was quite early in the second half when Gendouzi got flattened by Barnes, and there was a little stoppage in play. I think it was for that one anyway, but Emery called... Socrates over to the sideline. Socrates went over and the two of them were in conversation and he is experienced but I I I can only guess at what was being said, but it would have been, look, just remember how important you are to this team today. You have a big mm-hmm. responsibility because you are our only natural central defender and they're going to be a, a tough proposition. They're going to get balls in the box, they're going to make life difficult for us. You know, you have to stay on the pitch. So you know, be aware in how you make challenges and everything else. And I think he was absolutely uh, step perfect in that second half. There will be a day, I think, where he'll go too far. And it will annoy us and it will frustrate us. And we'll say, you know what, a player of his experience, he should know better, blah, blah, blah. And we'll deal with that as and when the time comes. But in terms of yesterday, I I thought he had a a fantastic impact on the game. You know, at the time, in the second half, I was thinking, this isn't, great again. This is a bit nervy. This is not uh, as controlled a performance as I would like. With the benefit of hindsight, I'm looking at that defense and I'm wondering what else can we really expect from a team which knows deep down within itself that it doesn't really have a strong defensive platform. You know, it's absolutely cobbled together, sellotaped together, little bits of twine and rope or whatever. Uh, sticky back plastic keeping a back four then a back five together you know it's it's a bit of a mess back there so I think in the cold light of day I can not forgive but I can understand why we weren't necessarily as on top of the game as people would have liked particularly after they scored
1: yeah I think you know we've talked all season about how Emery wants us to build up from the back but the back is a mess at the moment. Yeah. People playing out of position, and the guy who you know is the fulcrum of our team, really in terms of what he does with the ball, is Granit Xhaka, and we're spending you know whole games or parts of games without him in central midfield, and I do think that's hurting us. But it's a kind of a needs must situation. I mean, losing Monreal during the first half yesterday is he another huge blow. I mean, I was looking at him at centre half and thinking actually he looks all right there alongside Socrates. you know I I think I've got quite a lot of faith in him to play at centre half even in a four and then suddenly he pulls up with some sort of muscle problem I didn't even notice he was injured until the sub was being made and Mm. suddenly you think well we're right back in the shit again in terms of our personnel so it's a really tricky time and uh, I do think you know there are issues sometimes with the selection and with the way we've Managed games, But I do think the manager is actually doing pretty well to kind of continually keep yeah. evolving and shifting and changing this back line and managing to pull up results here and there.
2: Yeah, look, when you don't play well and win, you can get away with it for a couple of times. But I think there's something more to this team Uh, this season the ability to win games without playing that well is an actual ability I know we've talked about riding our luck and I absolutely stand by that but the more the season goes on the more we're able to to grind out results and Emery is having Mm -hmm. to change his team week in week out and uh, I I think it's to his credit that we're getting those results it won't always work as we saw last week at Southampton but for the most part there's something more to this team than there has been in in the last couple of years Let's talk a little bit about the team. Mesut will back. Um, captain, captain the side. No as captain, yeah. Look, he is one of the captains. And I guess there must be a, a pecking order in terms of the captains because uh, Xhaka is one of the captains as well. But I think it was quite a deliberate uh, decision from Emery to, to make him the captain and to bring him back. He left him out in midweek. It was clearly, I think, anyway designed to get a reaction out of ozil uh, i think if you haven't already listened to the arsenal vision podcast this week it's their post tottenham episode clive uh, talks really well about why emery has dealt with ozil in the way that he's dealt with him uh, over the last week or so he has to mm. he has to be strong in the dressing room absolutely has to be and there was i think a response from ozil yesterday it's never been his talent or quality or vision that's been in question. It's been the application of that on a consistent basis on the pitch. And we saw yesterday what he can bring to this team because that pass to Kolasinac, I think Kolasinac, A, deserves a huge amount of credit for making the run and getting there. Yeah. Like, really, really great run and really fantastic pace to get in behind the defender, But Ozil's vision and ability to pick that pass out was second to none. And that was the difference between 0-0 and 1-0.
1: It says at it's best. I'm pretty sure we've seen that pass before. I seem to remember uh, him finding Nacho Monreal in a similar fashion for Monreal to score at the far post, I think, some point last season. But it is an astonishing pass. It's one of those great freeze-frame moments where at the moment he is about to play the ball, I think Kolasinac is almost out of frame on the television pictures. You know, you can't really spot him. Özil does see him coming, and it's just beautifully weighted. I mean, the control on the pass to to stop it sort of skipping beyond Klasnac and out of touch, mm. and still get that bend, still get that pace on it. I mean, it's a, a magnificent pass. And I agree with you, Klasnac's great strength, really. I think is his well, apart from his strength, <laughs> his off the ball running mm. is outstanding. You know, his timing of runs to get inside and beyond the fullback is brilliant. But the the touch that he produces back for Aubameyang. Watching it in real time from the other end of the pitch, uh, I actually didn't realise that he'd produced that touch. I thought it was sort of a deflection off the defender. Mm. But it's really well weighted back to Aubameyang and a really good first-time finish. I mean, it's actually a brilliant goal. And I think there were about 18 or 19 passes in the build-up to it. So fantastic to see Ozil give that response. I thought he was much more committed on the day than we've seen in certain performances, certainly uh, the Southampton one. And, uh, I mean, I thought he looked knackered by the end of the game. I think the fact we'd made other substitutions due to injury is probably what kept him on the field. But I thought it was a, a much better performance from him. And if Emery's idea was to try and motivate him to try the best out of him, you have to say that, so far, it seems to have been a, a decent move.
2: Yep, for sure. Look, it's a first little baby step back to redemption, in some ways, for Mesut Ozil. We need him to produce that in the next game at Brighton and we need him to produce it at Liverpool if he plays against Liverpool so that might be something we can discuss um, again but no a really really fantastic pass a really good goal as well and Kolasinac has coupled now his forward running with much better backward running and much more defensive awareness perhaps it was a matter of just getting some match fitness and being able to to uh, to get up and down the pitch which he seems much better able he to does do He look fitter now He does but he's he so dangerous me. isn't he in the final third So I mean, he's maybe more effective as an attacker than a defender, which is a bit of an issue for a defender. Yeah, maybe so. But he's become really important to the way we're playing.
1: He has. I mean, it reminds me a bit of you know Manchester City, particularly in Pep's first season, where their game was all about getting their uh, you know attacking fullbacks in behind and getting those pullbacks. And you thought, how can they keep doing this? How are opposition not? wise to this and Kolasinac has almost got that level of danger to him now I mean he's so good he's so so good as I say with the timing of the runs and to be honest his pullbacks are pretty decent you know sometimes they miss their target but they're always into good areas and I just think that he's become integral to the way we play I mean we played a sort of uh, slightly different formation we've seen it I I think we saw it from the start against Huddersfield didn't we it was three in central midfield with Gendouzi Xhaka and Elneny and then Urzel behind Lacazette and Aubameyang Mm. so Really, all the width has to come from the fullbacks, even though you're playing with the back four. It was Klasnach and Maitland Niles pushing on, and there's a huge emphasis on them to provide that attacking threat. But they did do it in that first half, and especially once we switched to three at the back, it was almost even more so on them yeah. to go forward. But I think he's been one of the surprises of the season, really, because I think, I mean, I think even in the first couple of games of the season, I, I seem to remember having conversations with people, maybe with you, about. You know, it's probably never going to work for him at Arsenal. We need mm. to cut our losses. But I think he is showing uh, rather impressively that he has got something to offer. I agree with you. It is much more about what he does in the final third of the pitch than anywhere else, actually. I think he has got better. Um, but I think that, you know... It is his attacking threat that makes him such a valuable asset right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was involved in the second goal as well, picking up the ball yeah. from Gendouzi, a good ball from Gendouzi, setting him free down the left-hand side. I thought it was really interesting that Aubameyang spoke in his post-match interview about how they'd practiced those kind of finishing scenarios in training the day before the game. Whether it was like, mm. you know, the ball in that position with a defender in front of you, what do you do? Uh, the finish was absolutely emphatic, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, he thumped it into the near post. And maybe not what you would say is a a typical Aubameyang goal. You know, you imagine him with those maybe more delicate finishes or the side foot. Do you, though? Because when you think
2: think about it this season, he scored a couple of really uh, some crackers. You know, I do know the kind of finish you're talking about, but you think about the goal against Spurs... And there was a goal from outside the box against Fulham, Cardiff, yeah, and
1: Cardiff, Cardiff, then, yeah. I think it was, maybe Fulham as well. Uh, yeah, but in both instances they were kind of they're controlled, um, I guess, curled shots, I yeah. guess. yeah, the inside of the foot. Whereas this one, he really just put you know his laces through it, which I I feel like I haven't seen him do too often. But it's a great goal, brilliant goal, and his his footwork before he takes the shot is immaculate, you know, to create the little space, little gap at the near post is there, and he mm. fires it beyond Joe Hart, which isn't always the hardest task. Not quite <laughs> sure how he's become Burnley's number one goal. England's number four, they were chanting at him from the uh, stands <laughs> yesterday. And, uh, yeah, look, I, that was a brilliantly timed goal for us as well, because after, after we'd gone up 1-0 up, we hadn't really pressed home the advantage, had we? You thought 14 minutes in, we go 1-0 up against Burnley. Ideal, the game's going to open up. But actually, it didn't really suit them to open it up too much because as long as the advantage was only one goal, they were kind of still in the game. And I think we didn't have a shot between the 20th minute and half-time or something like it. So right. when we got that goal straight after half-time, I was like, oh, fantastic, You know, we're in the clear here. But it was never... I mean, I think 3-1 sort of as a final scoreline suggests that this was really comfortable, but it never really felt like that to
2: No, me. no, it didn't really feel that comfortable. Even at, at 2-0, I, I was expecting a bit of an onslaught from Burnley. What, what did you make of their goal? Was there a free kick? Am I remembering this right? Because I haven't had a chance to look back on it. But a free kick before they scored or a corner or something, but about five of them were offside. And play continued. Am I remembering this right?
1: That, I think, is correct, yeah. Mm. I don't remember the exact flow of the game, but I think that is right, that I was surprised. It was one of those kind of second-phase issues, but there were genuinely five Burnley players offside, I Mm. think, from... It was a free kick, I think, uh, about 30 yards out. Right. And, nevertheless, when the ball came back into the box, I don't think Arsenal could be too happy with the hesitation we showed that led to the ball rebounding to Ashley Barnes to stick it in at the new post. No, it was scrappy stuff, wasn't it? It really was. Um... Yeah, I think Shaka sort of had his, he had his back, uh, he was sort of facing his own goal, and then I think he had Torreira in front of him, and there was just a moment of hesitation between the two of them as to who was actually going to mm. knock it clear. I don't think either one really did with any conviction and then the ball, I guess it was lucky for Burnley, rebounded for Barnes and Mm. as the pantomime villain of the day, uh, he was always going to score, I guess.
2: Yeah, I I did like Lichtsteiner's uh, reaction to it, pounding the ground in frustration, which I I can understand. And at that point, you know, 2-1 we... We didn't really control the game the way I thought we might, but again, it comes back to having that defensive platform. I'm not sure midfield quite operated as well as it might have done. Um, mm.
1: I, don't b- think, I don't think Elneny had a great game, if I'm honest. Like, no. uh, or Gendouzi, actually. No, I don't think I, either I were thought, that good. No, I thought both were below par and actually once we had to move Shaka into the back three it kind of felt like a matter of time until Torreira had to come on you know it never felt like we were going to yeah. get through the 90 minutes without him
2: I yeah I was a little bit surprised we didn't see Aaron Ramsey I, I suspect that might mean we'll see Aaron Ramsey at Brighton on uh Wednesday uh, yeah but nevertheless he brought on uh, uh Torreira, and then he brought on uh, Alex Iwobi, Iwobi, Burnley. We're looking for a penalty. What was your, what was your thought on the penalty incident with Kolasinac, um and whoever the fuck it was, I can't remember. I some some
1: twat. I, I, I don't think it was a penalty. Do you?
2: I, I didn't really think it was a penalty. I think if you get pushed in the back, you know, and you fall backwards, it shows that maybe you're looking for it. Nevertheless. I have to say, I I worry a little bit about that part of Kolasinac's game. Uh, He is prone to making those kind of things look a bit too obvious, you know? Right. Um, It was a really obvious two hands in the back. And I think another referee might well have... Given that as a as a penalty, you know you just can 't tell yeah. with, with referees and Premier League referees, but you know the the two hands went into his back, and he could have just been bracing himself for the guy backing into him you know but when when it looks like it does in real time, there are referees who will, who will give that as a
1: penalty, I think, but for me, he needs some some lessons from socrates doesn 't he really I mean, yeah, he needs a lesson from one of the masters he is he, you know if you watch him from set
2: pieces though he is very much man focused rather than ball focused and i know that could be because of our uh the way we're we're set up or the job that he's being asked to do but he is quite he has a tendency to sort of hang on to the man and push and pull and shove and you know that's fine but just sometimes for me it's a it's a little bit obvious and i worry that we might get penalized um uh, at some point but there you go that's just me worrying He's not a, he's me.
1: not a subtle player is he in any way Kolasinac No, uh, no that's particularly fair. <laughs> That's <laughs> fair um, he, he's one of the strangest footballers I've I know we've talked about already but that uh, I've ever seen at Arsenal I mean I, I can't quite figure it out you know there, there are parts of the pitch where I just don't trust him with the ball you know I I almost don't have huge faith in him to play a, a 10 or 15 yard pass but then once he's in that final third, he feels like, you know, a real, a real quality player. It's, mm. it's hard, isn't it? It's just got very rough edges to him. Uh, yeah. But he's very, very effective at times. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. So, look, the game was winding down towards injury time. We got a third goal. Mm. Uh, it won't be involved in the move. Drove forward, gave it to Ozil. Ozil into the box. I thought it was opening up for him. Do you think it was a pass Same. or a shot? Do you think he was shooting?
1: I think he was shooting, yeah. Mm. I think he was shooting. Do you think pass, maybe? Yeah, I just thought the connection
2: was was not quite strong enough for a shot. Um,
1: but that's a Mesut Ozil shot, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. Not, that's... Uh, he's not someone who's ever going to produce one of those Aubameyang finishes that we saw for the second goal. Yeah, he's always yeah. going to pass it into the net. I, I thought it was probably offside for Iwobi, but... Yeah, but I mean, just like care. barely, barely. And also, who gives a fuck? You know. I was pleased for him as well, because you know we've talked about his confidence maybe being down a bit in the last couple of weeks we've talked about mm. his end product being lacking, and there was that incident wasn't there where he got into the box, did a load of step overs and I think was dispossessed and the crowd were le- less than pleased I think at that point in time, but you know he produced a decent enough finish and got the goal. And hopefully, hopefully that'll see him getting back towards the kind of form he was showing us in September, October time.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was good. And I think, you know, he, he'll he get a boost from that goal. Um, you know, if one of the criticisms is that he hasn't had enough end product, then there's some end product for you and he can build on that, hopefully. Um, I have a question about the Lacazette reaction. We'll do that in part two, you know, but that, that, was, a, that was a thing. Um, in the end, though, it was a win that we absolutely needed, a win that we got. And as we said at the top, the fact that it annoyed Burnley so much makes it all the sweeter. Uh, that was. I'm just watching the game again here. I just got it on. And there's this, the bit where uh, Cross comes in from the right-hand side. It's Barnes and Licksteiner. And I remember looking at this at the time going, what is what is Licksteiner doing? What is he doing? And basically he's, He's on Barnes, and as the ball comes in, he sort of flings himself into the air. It is a dive. Yeah, I mean... It is a dive. I mean, it, it's a re- so really it risky it, thing to do, though. He could have just stayed with so the man.
1: Bear in mind, I was sat right at the other end of the pitch. So when I saw these Sean Dyche quotes about diving, I had no idea really what he was talking about. I was like, I can't even think of the incidents in question. But then Match of the Day apparently highlighted that, that mm. Lichsteiner moment... And uh, a granite shaka incident as well. I don't know if you've seen. Yeah, that but that's one that's back.
2: that's one that players do all the time. Is where they get themselves in front of the ball. Uh, defenders, in particular, do this all the time. They get themselves yeah. in front of the ball in the box, and they sort of invite a tiny bit of contact, and then they go down. And ninety nine point nine 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 times out of one hundred, they get a free kick there. So that's not really a dive. That's just playing the game the way it's played these days. You know, Burnley defenders would do it. Every defender in the Premier League would uh, uh, would do exactly what Xhaka did there. I don't think that's a dive, per se. I think that's just making sure you get the free kick in the right area because, you know, that's that's what you do in that situation. A dive is, you know, something like where you go into the box and you pretend to fall over somebody's leg in order to win a penalty or a free kick or whatever it might be. For me, that's what diving really is. Um, uh, and not this. Is that what
1: Lichsteiner is doing?
2: Licksteiner is absolutely diving, yeah. It's a crazy yeah, it's a huge thing to risk, do. isn't it? It is a massive yeah. risk because the referee could look at that and say, uh, well, mate, you've just thrown yourself over there, play on. And Barnes would have been mm. cleaned through. So, you know, while I respect the commitment to the shithousery,
1: the, the shit-housery
2: <laughs> which is a, a diplomatic way of putting it, it is. <laughs> It was a hell of a risky thing to do. But look, it worked out in the end. It was a moment uh, that I think we can enjoy in hindsight. So uh, let's do that and let's not worry about the the other part of it. Oh, here's, oh look at this one. This is this is part of what uh, the referee got wrong yesterday. The game is just playing here. 71st minute, 72nd minute, Westwood comes in, smashes right through Xhaka as Xhaka challenging for the ball. Oh, he just, yeah, yeah. he, he uh, jumped hip height into Xhaka. You know, that's the kind of shit, that's, that's worse than diving for me. If you, if you don't want uh, children to take something bad from the game, don't show them that. Don't set that as your example. Hurt your opponent deliberately. There was no intent there to play the ball. It was just to clatter the man. So, you know, they can stick their fucking holier-than-thou shit right up their fucking arses, as far as I'm concerned.
1: And what a good three points it turned out to be. Because yeah. Obviously, Chelsea got beat. Uh, by Leicester, mm-hmm. so we move level on points with them. Spurs have got a potentially tricky game. I mean, you might be, uh, you might know the result when you listen to this, but they've got Everton away. Uh, Theo today. Walcott
2: with the winner for Everton today.
1: Yeah, that would be. Lovely. I'm telling you, yeah, I would. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, in the context of the the race for the top four, it was a good three points. And also, I think yesterday probably a bit of a reminder of. How tricky and how odd at times these Christmas fixtures can be, and how mm. much it is just about trying to grind out results and accumulate as many points as possible. You know, obviously Palace with that massive upset at City. Um, so yeah, I, I this is a decent start. Mm. And we've got to go on and, and get the other th- more three points at Brighton.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, the table can shift quite considerably around this time of the year because of how much football is played. So, you can find yourself in a much healthier position or a seemingly much less healthy position. And we've started that well. And we're only seven points behind City now. I think it's on, James. I think it's on. It's on.
1: W- well, what's on? Second?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I yeah. mean, look, I'd take it. i yeah. definitely take it. For sure.
2: All right. Well, look, we're going to leave it there for part one. We're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Welcome back to this festive Arscast Extra. And this is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunner Blog and at Arse Blog, and also on the Arse Blog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Blog. Would you like to go first? I give you the gift of going first oh.
1: this Christmas, James. Thank you very much. I got you socks. Oh, um, cool. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> needs socks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tiki Tekers says on Twitter, "Is this the most bastardy Arsenal we've seen since the Invincibles?" Um, maybe,
2: maybe. I think I'm
1: it's trying to think now.
2: Yeah, I think because we have some players who are just naturally predisposed to that kind of behaviour. You know mm. the the Socrates we've already talked about. Licksteiner is clearly. Into a bit of that, I'm not sure what else there is really in the team. Lucas Torreira likes to tackle, so that's certainly, certainly something. But I just think there is a little bit of a change in mentality, a little bit of a change in mentality uh, about what this team feels like it's capable of. Like, I always felt it was self-defeating in a way. Remember when we used to go to Stoke with De and Song and, uh, you know, Fabregas? Yeah. I'm not saying Fabregas was a shrinking violet in any way, but he wasn't a particularly big player. That as soon as it did get physical or a bit too physical, we, we felt like we couldn't cope with it. Because we didn't have the characters on the pitch who would stand up and combat that kind of treatment of our players. You know, we could complain about it or we could lie down and they'd all sing same old Arsenal, always cheating, which they do whenever our players get fouled, um, which I have to say, it annoys me in a visceral way, that chant. And I know it shouldn't. I'm a 47-year-old man. But every time I hear a stadium sing that chant, I would like a sinkhole to open up and swallow every single one of the home fans, leaving the away fans, of course, uh, perfectly safe and sound. Um, but I do think we've got more to us this season. I also think probably the fact that it's a new manager means that players are a bit more inclined to, to stand up for themselves or to show that they've got the character that this manager might like, you know? So I think there's there's yeah. an element of that to it as well. Now, I'm not sure we're massive bastards. I'd say Burnley are more bastardy than we are, but I think just we're more capable of coping with the bastardry.
1: Yes, I think we're probably the most bastardy Arsenal team we've seen for a while. I think compared to a lot of other teams, we're not that bastardy. I mean, the players you mentioned were Sokratis, uh, Steiner. I think I'd probably throw Gendouzi into that mix too. I know he's only 19 or Would something. You? But yeah, I just think there's a bit of gamesmanship about him. I feel like he, you know, to be honest, I mean, his dive the other week is a bit of an example of it. I think that he is, I think he's got needle in him and I'm not complaining. Mm. I like that. No, no, sure. Him. Um, But yeah, beyond that, it's not like, I mean, I suppose kalasinach you know, he seems like a very good-natured guy, but he's not someone who loses many physical battles, um, you know, if it's about shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder rather than a, a mm. foot race. Uh, but, yeah, I think there is, it is a bit more collective, isn't it? Like you say, it's more about that capacity to grind things out, that yeah. kind of will to win, that desire to put the collective first. I think that is what's really changing, and I'm sure those characters are part of it, um, well, look, but look there's a, go on, I'm Go I'm just going to give you a
2: question here because it comes from Isaac Naurusi. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that wrongly, but nevertheless, I'm doing my best. Um, he says, I saw Unai Emery having a dig at Sean Dyche on the touchline. Do you think he's instilling some of this shithousery in the team? Is it an element of his game plan? This also applies uh, to the feistiness we see from some of our players that aren't normally known from, for that. I thought that was fucking great. I really mm. enjoyed seeing Emery give a bit to, to Sean Dyche towards the end of the game. I can't imagine what he was saying. It wasn't good half to I'm, I'm
1: sure Sean Dyche <laughs> had absolutely no idea what Emery was saying to him. <laughs> Having watched a few press conferences, Sean Dyche was probably absolutely bewildered. But I liked it too because, you know, it, I think it shows a little bit, because he was kind of doing it on Arsenal's behalf. Do you know what I mean? It felt yeah. like a little moment where he was sort of, felt more at home with the club and he was kind of fighting our fight. I really liked it, yeah.
2: Okay, I, it's my question, I think. Okay, this is from H, who's at AFC Tube. And he says, what do you make of Lacazette's reaction to coming off? Some frustration with his re- recent treatment creeping in?
1: So, I haven't seen it, is, is, the, is the quick answer. I, I, I could tell that he was frustrated on the pitch, actually there were mm. a couple of moments where the ball didn't go his way and he was throwing his arms up so what did he actually do when he was brought off
2: well he came off and he shook hands with the manager and then he sort of was talking quite animatedly to a couple of people on the bench and he didn't look happy with the decision and he sat there and he was like nah, you know having a bit of a having a bit of a moan and then the cameras came back to him at one point and he was sitting i can't remember who he was sitting beside but the focus was on him and he was he had one of his calves Uh, taped up or strapped up really quite uh, well. And he was undoing the the bandage and what have you. And he sat there and he had a sort of unhappy look on his face and he threw the bandages away. And then it went back to the match. So it was really a player making it very clear that he wasn't happy to be taken off. Eli Emery's uh, reaction um, himself was to say, yeah, I like it. I like when a striker comes off and he's uh,
1: unhappy you know um... he also said So I think quite tellingly he was like Lacazette is coming back to the, the best Lacazette which suggests yeah. that he's not been you know left out of the team in recent weeks by accident that Emery feels there's been a bit of a dip in his performance and whether that's something that's reflected in the statistical analysis or just something he's observed uh, you know it means that there is a thought behind it I was quite surprised he came off just because Aubameyang is really racking up a lot of minutes at the moment yeah. and I I sort of expected them to share the playing time a little bit more in this period with all these intense games. Um, But I've got no issue with it, really. I mean, look, he's a player who wanted to score. I don't remember him having a shot in anger, really, in the game. I know he laid on... The second goal, didn't he, for Aubameyang with a a, a nice little pass. There was uh, one moment where where
2: the ball came to him from just after Burnley scored, I think. Kolasinac got down the left, as he does, and he pulled the ball back for Lacazette. And do you remember he scored a goal quite similar... Uh, like, again, it was a cross and he kind of took the ball in run motion and turned and scored with it. Last season, I think it was. It was a really nice right. finish. And this time the ball just got away from him. So maybe there is a bit of rustiness. Maybe he has been affected by this injury. And maybe, again, it's part of Emery's man management is to frustrate players a little bit. Maybe that's what it is. Mm. You know, uh, no striker likes to come off. Particularly late in a game, I, I could understand the change in a way to bring on Iwobi, maybe to give us somebody who could carry the ball when we got it, you know. But I really don't have any issue with a player being pissed off when they get substituted, you know. Once also, it's not, once it's not too like, look at me, look like. Did it happen to Alexis a couple of times, and you knew Alexis was making yeah. it all about him. And it was about his ego and everything else. And I think Lacazette's frustration was just basically pure frustration at not scoring, at not being able to to get a goal and of being denied the final 15 minutes of a game in which he has said himself, hasn't he, a few times, as the game goes on, defenders get tired strikers get a bit more space and more opportunities to score goals. In the end, we won. It will be scored. I think he'll be quite happy that the team won and next time he plays, maybe there's just a bit more from him or he'll be determined to give a bit more.
1: I mean, ultimately, this feistiness that we've seen from Lacazette this season, I think it has been a very welcome addition to his game. If you think back to his first season at Arsenal, he was getting brought off at that point in every single match. And, uh, you know, his head was generally down and kind of like, well, okay, off I come, off I trot. But now, you know, he's he's playing with that much more confidence, that much more swagger that he is unhappy when he comes off. And that's fine. I think it's absolutely fine. And I think, you know, it's what you want to see. It's what you want to see from him. And I think it's part of his kind of... Uh, Is re- what's the word I'm trying to think of? Renewed sort of attitude that he's brought to this season. Yeah. I think it's part of what's made him a better player. So uh, I've got no issue at all. I do slightly worry about Aubameyang's legs just because he's playing a lot of football at the moment. But I imagine there's going to be some rotation coming up. Definitely, for example, in the FA Cup.
2: Uh, just speaking of Aubameyang, I'll do another question here. This comes from Akshay Kamath who's at Akshay underscore Kamath 14 on Twitter. Uh, Bakari Sanya was in the Sky Sports studio yesterday, l- looking very cool, I have to say. Um, and he right. says, uh, uh, Sanya said yesterday, Aubameyang isn't world class at the moment for us. What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, he's the top scorer in the Premier League, um, which is pretty decent going. And I thought his finishes yesterday were from pretty much the only chances he had in the game particularly the second one, that was a world-class finish. Fantastic Mm. strike. Um, I mean, it's difficult. I never quite know what world-class means, but I don't think there are many teams in the world who would not pick Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang given the chance. Let's put it like that. That's fair. even Even if I think of the best teams in England, you know, Liverpool and Man City, I genuinely think both of them would find room for Aubameyang in their team. Um, maybe City would rotate him with Aguero, you know. But aside from that, I, mm. I think that he would walk into pretty much any team because he's such a fantastic goal scorer and he's scoring a lot of goals in a team who aren't top of the league or anything like it. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's got to be considered pretty close to world class. Yeah, yes. It's, it's I, such a, I probably would say.
2: It's such a nebulous term, isn't it? Because if you, let's yeah. say, define world class as being Lionel Messi, then nobody else apart from maybe Cristiano Ronaldo, is world-class. But if you no, were to say world-class um, was players like Hazard, players of that stature, I think Aubameyang is certainly up in, in that category. When you look at the the goal contributions that he's made since he joined this club, uh, it's it's a remarkable scoring record, and his involvement in goals is incredible. Was it something like... He's been involved in 19 goals in 14 starts or whatever it is. I, I can't quite figure out. I saw it during the rounds last night. But, you know, in, ter- in Premier League terms, goals and assists based on the amount of appearances that he has made for us, it's an incredible record. And can you mm. can you have that kind of a record if you're not nominally world class? It's difficult, but I, you know, I, I like you. I, I think there aren't too many teams in the world that would turn down their noses at a Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, and that's that's for me maybe the best measure is like what team would he get into in the Premier League? I think he'd probably get into most of them. Most managers would have him.
1: Yeah, apart I from really Burnley. Think so. and I th- yeah, Burnley wouldn't like him. Not enough, not elbowy enough. Um, and I think that. That's another sort of good news story to come out of the Burnley game is that he had been on a a mini drought, shall we say? What was it, five games without a goal, something Mm. like that? Uh, So for him to end that quite emphatically and and get a brace and be back on the the scoring trail, I think that's a a really positive thing because he can be the difference for us. He's shown that before and he showed it again yesterday. Yeah. Um, Let's have a question. This is a question looking ahead to... Boxing Day from Tom Walsgrove who's at Desmond underscore Dex on Twitter and Tom says do we risk playing Torreira who is one booking away from a suspension against Brighton on Boxing Day with Liverpool away to come in the following match?
2: Yeah that is a question we had the same question from Constant Stridum at Constant underscore 8 with Liverpool in mind should Torreira be benched against Brighton seeing as he's one yellow away from suspension? Um... I, I suspect some of this might depend on what defensive options we have. Uh, there's talk yeah. of Koscielny and a the lot of Shaka. Yeah, yeah. If it were me, if it were me, I absolutely would not play Torreira against Brighton. I wouldn't.
1: Okay. I think I would. Tell me why you wouldn't. Well, I
2: wouldn't because I think we have to consider. Our chances of getting a result against Liverpool already very difficult, um yeah, and I think would be even more difficult without Torreira. um yeah, so I think when you look at what we could put out against Brighton, you know you've got Genduzzi, I know El Nenny wasn't great yesterday, but you've got El Nenny, you've got Aaron Ramsey, you've got Granite Jacca. You've got maybe Ainsley, Maitland, Niles, maybe. You've got um, Mesut Ozil, who can play there. Alex Iwobi, not necessarily a central midfielder per se. But I think you can make a strong midfield against Brighton without Lucas Torreira. And I think a midfield that should be capable of winning the game without him. I was slightly surprised yesterday that he didn't pick up a booking.
1: Mm-hmm. Um well, a, 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 ta- a tactical one almost.
2: Yeah, a tactical one, just a shirt pull or something, whatever it might be. There was a moment where he went in on a challenge and the guy, I think he caught the guy, it was one of those, it was a, an honest attempt to go for the ball. It wasn't a wasn't a bad foul or anything, but it was one of those where I was going, is this it? Is this the booking? Because I think that would have taken the the decision out of Emery's hands, obviously. Mm. And now he has a decision to make. You know, Does he prioritise three points against Brighton with Torreira in the team, I don't know. You know, obviously, that, obviously, that's sort two, of my thinking. Yeah, obviously, two draws in the next two games would be worse than beating Brighton and losing to Liverpool. Even though we don't want to lose to Liverpool, that's the reality of that situation. So, does he prioritise yeah. the three points and then say que sera, sera, when it comes to going to Anfield, or does he try and win the game without Torreira, who I think has been fantastic and influential? But I also think we can win games like this without him. And I'm not taking Brighton for granted because we lost there last season, if you remember. Uh, you can't take anything for granted. But I do, I, I think if it were me, I would leave him on the bench. And the only way I would put him on is if we had an injury or, or something that really required him to come onto the pitch. Otherwise, I will put my trust in other players to get us the result.
1: I mean, I think Brighton, you know, they've won their last two games. They beat Palace and Huddersfield. All right, not great teams, but they won away at Huddersfield, which was a, a decent result for them. I I think we've got just got to take it a game at a time because ultimately, like you say, two draws is worth less than one win. We aren't catching Liverpool. You know, I, 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 saw, I guess in my mind, I'm sort of thinking I can kind of see us getting turned over there, Torreira or no Torreira. So I'd rather have the three points from Brighton. I, I'd rather give everything to get those in the bank. And then anything we get at Liverpool is a bonus. Um, so, and, and also, yeah, but, he might come through the Brighton game without a booking. Oh, no, that's you know? true. It is. And we are obviously thinking about it from the worst case scenario point of
2: view. But let's, you know, Liverpool are a fantastic team this season and playing very well. And they're a huge threat up front. But let's not forget what we did at the Emirates against Liverpool. We weren't...
1: yeah. Uh, and completely was a huge another league,
2: exactly. So I don't think our ambition going to Anfield should be well. Let's see if we can sneak a point one way or the other, or you know, uh, you know. I think we've got more about us than that this season, and certainly based on the way we played against Liverpool at the Emirates, I don't know why we should feel that inferior. Okay, the league table will make you look inferior. The defensive record is certainly inferior, but if we have. Koscielny, Socrates, and Mustafi in a back three uh, at Brighton, let's say, then I think there should be enough elsewhere in the team to, to cope without Torreira. Uh, and he has shown this season that he is a man who will look a little bit ahead. He will look ahead when it comes to making his team selections. You know, so uh, I... I suspect he'll start that game on the bench. Could be wrong, but that's what I think.
1: He'll probably come on and get booked. (laughs) In the 95th minute. 95th minute booking (laughs) for Torreira.
2: For scoring the winner and taking his shirt off. (laughs)
1: Uh, (laughs)
0: Um,
2: Whose question is it? I think it's my question. Um, I'll go on then. Ian Stone, who's at Ian D. Stone, says, Is it fair to say that all five of Emery's summer signings have worked out pretty well? Also, Ian Wone, what an absolute weapon that bloke is. Discuss. Ian Wone is the. Do you think Ian? Ian, Ian Wone is former Nottingham Forest player who is now the assistant manager of. of- Burnley. So, obviously, oh, Ian, Ian Stone, Woon? yeah, Ian Stone from his uh, position in the stadium behind the dugouts there, more or less, has seen Ian Wone. So, Ian Stone is having a moan about Ian Wone.
1: Maybe because people mistake him for him because of a similar sounding name. But that, I mean, that I can be... It, for his sake. Be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I did notice... Um, Somebody prowling the Burnley technical area and remonstrating with the fourth official whenever possible that wasn't Sean Dyche. So I can only assume that was Ian Wone who I remember basically for having a good left-footed shot from long range for Nottingham Forest, mm. scoring some great goals, particularly one against Newcastle, I think, that was really good. Um, but look, I mean, if he's associated with Burnley, he's associated with their staff, yeah, he probably is a bit of a wanker, isn't he? As for, <laughs> as for Ian's other question... They have all worked out pretty well, but I wouldn't call them Unai Emery signings. I'd probably credit, you know, the executive gang led by Sven Mislintat with, with those signings.
2: Let's give them a mark out of 10 each, the, the signings.
1: OK, because yeah, so, we're almost at halfway, aren't we?
2: Yeah, we're almost at halfway, and I, I don't think it's unfair to make some kind of assessment of them. So Bernd Leno, what would you give Bernd Leno out of out of 10?
1: Actually, let me have a think. Um, well, well seven, you're thinking, I think. OK, I
2: give him a seven and a half. 7.5 okay. for me,
1: I think it's... I thought he did well against Burnley, actually. And, and you know, we had a discussion after Southampton about whether or not he would stay in the team. We both ultimately decided that he probably would, but yeah. I thought he responded to that mistake pretty well. And he made a very good save early on, actually, to prevent Burnley taking I, yeah. I
2: Yeah, that, that didn't register with me as a save at first. It was only when they showed the replay. No, it didn't it with it the, the
1: officials initially. Yeah. I think they initially gave a goal kick and then they were like, oh, no, it's a, it's a corner. Great save. Yeah,
2: but I mean, actually, did you... I mean, this is where I think we can maybe talk about Matteo Genduzzi, who I would give a seven because I think there's a, a lot to like about his game. But yesterday, a couple of times, we saw the inexperience, particularly in defensive situations, and that chance was one where he got a little bit caught out. He didn't quite know what to do uh, and got yeah. it wrong and allowed the guy a shot. So for me, Genduzzi's a, a seven, very uh, willing runner, enthusiastic. He's got great energy, really good passing ability. Uh, like you say, maybe there's a little bit of the old uh, the gamesmanship in him as well. Um, but I, I still think there's a fair bit for him to learn.
1: I'm going to give him a seven and a half, basically because I'm kind of assessing that relative to his price tag and what we expected of him. I think he's he's been a real find, and and, and that's a very good signing and good value. So i could go a little bit higher and say seven and a half. Okay. Stefan Licksteiner. Um, I would say do you know what I sort of feel like with Lichsteiner I constantly look at him and think oh god he looks a bit creaky he looks a bit uh, on edge he looks a bit old at times but equally I can't think of any situation or goal that we've conceded where I've gone well that's down to Lichsteiner yeah do you know what I mean uh, I think sort of where I have felt his his Flaws most has been basically we've changed our game to be really uh, reliant on what our fullbacks can produce in the final third, and I don't think he matches up to the likes of mm. Kalaschnik, Bella, and Morial in that respect. Uh, but in terms of what we expected from him and what he's delivered, I sort of think he's been about par for what we would think. So I mean, maybe a, maybe a seven actually. Right. Okay. Seems generous, but what I mean is that, like, you know, I, I kind of think he's done what we, ex- for a signing on a free, mm. you know, who's just brought in to kind of be a squad body, really, and provide cover. I think he has sort of done that.
2: Yeah, I think he has. I mean, for me, a par would be six. I give him a six out of ten. Um, right. I, I, You know, I, I share your view in that what we need from our fullbacks, he can't give us. So that's a bit no. of a, that is a bit of an issue. But if he has had an impact on the team in a positive way on the training ground in terms of attitude and character and personality and all those kind of things, then I'm on board with that too. So um... I
1: tried to make this point on Twitter, I think. But it, when he arrived, you know, there were... And in the early part of the season, there were genuinely people saying, well, it's a toss-up between him and Bellerin. You know, he should get a chance in the first team over Bellerin. And I think actually how brilliant Bellerin has been this season has really widened that gap and almost cast Lichsteiner in a, a poorer light because I think Bellerin has become so integral to the way we play. Yeah. Um, but maybe part of that is due to Lichsteiner and the competition he provides and maybe a little bit of coaching or advice here and there too. Yeah.
2: All right, Lucas Torreira.
1: Torreira's been great. Uh, I think he's been everything we could have hoped for. I think I'd probably have to say
2: eight and a half. Ooh, I'm going to give him a nine. I'm going to give him a nine.
1: Oh, lovely. It's Christmas. Okay. I'm
2: feeling festive and generous.
1: Yeah, why not? Why not? Um,
2: and who's the last one? Oh, Socrates. Socrates.
1: I think I would give Socrates um, a seven and a half. Okay. I think he's been great recently, but I just think, you know, it. That time, that settling in period where he's kind of in and out of the team means maybe his contribution hasn't been quite as as massive as I would hope, but I, I do very much like the look of him. What about yeah, you?
2: I think seven and a half as well. You know, he's had a couple of injury problems, so he hasn't really been able to properly establish himself in, in the team. Yeah. Uh, and we still concede loads of goals. Yeah, you the know, there, there is that side of things as well. So I, I like him. I I like him more than I was expecting to like him.
1: So yeah, same, yeah. We were warned. We, we were, were forewarned about him.
2: Yeah, uh, but I think he's been. I think he's been a positive uh, addition to the squad for sure. And uh, yeah, seven, seven and a half for me. So there you go. There's our signings rated, and Ian Wone I, you know, Ian Wone flies a drone over Gatwick Airport. That's what I think.
1: That's what I've heard, actually. Yeah. Um, well, if we Dr- can somehow circulate that rumour mm. among the police that would be quite the revenge on here, <laughs> <laughs> Um the Wone Drone The wound um, drone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right uh, let's have a look oh I quite enjoyed this question it's sort of about I suppose Shaka being played at centre half and things like that yeah. Destructible Cake who's at destructible cake says given both the current and previous management's ability to utilize square pegs in round holes, who was the squariest peg for the roundest hole you've seen play for Arsenal? Oh, okay. Um, I mean, Bentner on the wing.
2: Bentner on the wing is the one, one that immediate, to mind yeah. immediately straight yeah. away. Bentner as a right winger, absolutely springs to mind. Um, um, I can remember Charvin as a
1: centre forward was yeah, one as well that never really worked
2: I can remember seeing Theo Walcott not start but end a game at right back which I'd say mm. is is pretty similar um, gosh who else
1: I'm trying to think now I, I I think you're going to have to go a long way to beat Bentner on the right wing because at least with Asharvin, you know the thing about that that kind of in theory, made sense. You know, look at how someone like Messi or Salah has managed to kind of make the false nine thing work. Uh, You know, if anything, Arsenal was just ahead of his time and picking someone who was too fat and lazy. But uh, Bentner on the wing, difficult. Difficult to explain, that one, isn't Mm. it? Andre Santos at left back, that was a hard one too. Yeah, that was a poor (laughs) fit. That was a tough one. (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, what can you, you know, poor guy. Poor guy having to do that for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Instead of playing in his true true calling. Okay. (laughs) A a number 10 or whatever it was. Exactly.
2: Okay, we're going to finish off uh, with a couple of uh, Christmassy ones. Uh, this one comes from East Lower. Following on from We Wish You uh, Emery Christmas, or Emery Christmas, everybody, which we'll uh, give you a bit of in a moment. What are, you, what are your other favorite Christmas songs with Arsenal related mm. puns? Uh, there's a few um, replies to this which are quite Some good. Some great replies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Frimpong Merrily on High from Al Wayne75. Uh, Chaz Newkey Burden, <laughs> Ding Dong Emery Unai, which is very
1: good. Um, that's good Frederick Egan all I want for Christmas is Juru which <laughs> I enjoyed uh,
2: Eric JVC who's at Wiltord uh, a ray in a manger
1: yes of course um, I just want your extra time and your gifts on Twitter says are we not including Burkamp Wonderland of course there is yeah. already uh, an Arsenal Christmas chant um, and
2: a podcast of the yeah, same name
1: of course of course, yeah. Oh, and what there was a few Chris Ray ones doing the rounds as well. I forget. Uh, Eastlow himself, I wish it could be Chris Ray every, every day. day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you have a, a Ray in a manger already? I,
2: I didn't. Yeah, we did a Ray in a manger, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, once in Royal David O'Leary City Very from good. Chief Red Coat. Some excellent ones there. Uh, and of course i don't you know, want to give away anymore because we need to come up with one next year yeah you know exactly I mean? <laughs> we don't
2: want to have all these ideas taken taken from us um okay yeah. let's do this uh, very final one from beardy beard face would you rather eat christmas dinner every day all year or only ever listen to christmas songs great question
1: i am actually going to say so, hang on, so it's it's the christmas dinner is just once a day every day
2: you have to eat Christmas dinner every day, all year round, or only ever listen to Christmas songs. Christmas songs, please. Fuck, you're nuts. You're mental. Are You're you out, you're no out of way. your mind. I love Christmas songs. You're out They're of great. Your- listen, you know what? A friend of mine does uh, every year. He's got a radio station here in Ireland. They get a license for 30 days. It's called Christmas FM. Many of you out there will have heard of it because it's available online at ChristmasFM.com, um, and I do some voiceover work for him. I do the voiceovers right. uh, for Christmas FM, uh, and every year it's it's a like it's a brilliant thing because they pick a a charity partner every year. So it could be a, a homeless charity. This year it's a children's hospital. Previously it was a a cancer charity, and they raise about. I think last year they raised maybe 250,000, 300,000 euros for this particular homeless charity. And it's amazing what they do and the goodwill it generates and the the positive impact it has uh, from the listeners of that radio station uh, because they they do a donation day. It's it's amazing. And he says to me, you know, I know you're doing the voiceovers, but, you know, if you want to fancy uh, doing a show, you're more than welcome to do a few shows. And I have to say, look, Dara, I'm sorry. I would rather cut off my own fucking legs and eat them than spend two hours in a radio studio listening to Christmas music. I just, I just couldn't do it. And I know we do our Christmas songs and I produced the, the Christmas song. Uh, you know, we, we, we did our vocals separately and I, I produced it all together. And it means so having to, to listen to, listen to that it lot of time. loads of fucking times. And by the end of it, I'm like, uh, fucking kill me now, kill me now. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm going to take Christmas dinner because there's variety in Christmas dinner. You can, you can do all. What do you mean? It's turkey, isn't it? It's turkey. It's ham. It's potatoes. It sprouts. Well,
1: so you would just pick and choose. You know, you'd be like, "Oh, t- today I'm going to leave the sprout." I think you've got to eat it all every day. I think that's the that's the challenge. By the end of it, you just get like turkey meat,
2: ham, potatoes, uh, sprouts, turnips, parsnips, whatever else you've got in your. And you just put it in a blender, drink it like a slim fast.
1: Well, someone said there was another <laughs> question I forget now, saying what's the best Christmas snack you can make from Christmas leftovers. So oh, it was John D. Barker. Right. Said, What's the best leftover snack you can make for Christmas dinner? And I was gonna suggest a smoothie. Like if you just <laughs> whack it all in the in a juicer and whiz it up and just down it in one. Oh. But I
2: Well the real I answer the Christmas real answer salt. of course is a turkey and stuffing sandwich. Just that's of course. Yeah. Yeah, that is the correct But answer. you like
1: Christmas? I, I love yeah, I've got to give a shout out actually to my friend an Irish comedian called Kieran Dowd. I think he listens to the podcast sometimes so hello if you're listening Merry Christmas Kieran. But he I once found him sat in a bar where I was meeting him with his headphones in and he was crying. And I was like, "You're right mate." And it was it was June and I was like, "You're all right." And he said I was just listening to have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas and it's the most beautiful song in the world. <laughs> it made him cry in the middle of the summer. <laughs> I don't know if he'll be happy about me like that, But he loves Christmas songs. He listens to them all year round. And I do understand. I love a Christmas song. I know it's two chords and someone talking about bells, but I'm a sucker for it. And I couldn't eat Christmas lunch every day. In fact, this year, I've got to go to my mother-in-law's house the day before Christmas. And she's doing like a fake Christmas christmas lunch the day before christmas and i'm already concerned about that about having to have it two days in a row well you've got to have it three so, days because
2: everyone has it on the 26th as well you have the leftover i'll yeah, be having
1: that as a smoothie so yeah. that would be
2: different <laughs> brilliant well tell me how the smoothie goes I, i'm very curious to see what what it tastes like it could be great all those flavors could it
1: no sprouts
2: in a smoothie no. i don't think <laughs> so it couldn't it couldn't be great. Well, look, um, I, I think we should take a moment just to uh, wish everybody who listens a very merry, happy, peaceful, relaxing, festive Christmas. If you are celebrating Christmas, if you're not, we wish you all the same things, but without the presents and the booze. I think that's, mm. I think that's all if right.
1: think you not just enjoy all the football,
2: so much football. Exactly. And look, thank you. I know we say this every week, but thank you for being with us uh, and listening to us every week throughout the year. Uh, we've come more or less to the end of another year and uh, we really do appreciate... Uh your support, your listens, your uh, comments, your tweets, your Facebook messages, your emails, uh all of those things are, are absolutely great. It uh it touches us in our in our hearts and our special yes, areas. It does.
1: <laughs> And a special thanks, I guess, as well to all our our Patreon subscribers too who joined this year. That's been a brilliant, fun adventure. So thanks to you guys.
2: It certainly has. Uh, So look, we will leave you right now with the now traditional, what did you call it? massacring of a
1: of a Christmas song was that what you called it I can't remember yeah what could be more Christmassy than than ruining a Christmas song you enjoy yeah exactly uh, yeah. So, well I can tell you what could be worse is having to listen to it again and again and again as Andrew's had to so yeah. I, I imagine you'll be covering
2: your ears at this point I might well be and I'll be eating Christmas dinner all all year round just to avoid having to listen to any <laughs> Christmas music in the future we will leave it there thanks as ever we will be back at some point over the Christmas week with something don't worry about that we will have podcast for you this week there's a lot of football to play and some of it is very important football so we won't be ignoring that among the beers and wine and mince pies and uh, turkey smoothies and everything else so uh, until the next one take it easy have a very happy Christmas
1: Merry Christmas guys bye bye